Michael Mann, a name synonymous with blockbuster cinema. A perfectionist by nature that turned his keen eye and unwavering attention to detail from writing TV episodes of Starsky and Hutch, Police Story and his Emmy award winning writing and directing debut TV movie Jericho to some of the most iconic movies of the 80s, 90s and 2000s. He has been nominated for four Academy Awards and on this debut season of Opera Omnia we will discuss and review his 11 feature films, one every two weeks. So let's turn the clock back to 1981 with his first feature movie, Thief. I'm Duncan McLeish. I'm Andy Blockley. And welcome to Opera Omnia. everyone and welcome to the debut episode of Opera Omnia Podcasts. I am one of your hosts, Duncan McLeish, and I'm joined by my very good friend and compadre on this journey, Mr. Andy Blockley. How are you doing, Andy? Oh, we're back, aren't we? <laughs> we're back. Duncan. Back in black, I hate to say. That's <laughs> some of the lyrics I know from that song. Mm-mm. Yes, this is awesome. Like round two of uh, of us uh, doing a, a duet podcast. Yeah, if this is the first time you're hearing us, me and Andy together uh, on a show, and you may wonder what we're on about, and you may be like, "Is there a previous season of Opera?" No, this is the first season of Opera Omnia. But last year, myself and Andy went through a 25 episode, 72 movie odyssey known as Doing the Nasty Podcast. Andy, what did we cover in Doing the Nasty Podcast? Well, we uh, undertook the quite gruelling task of uh, watching and reviewing all 72 of the what's known as the Video Nasties, um, which for our American listeners was a very strange time in British cinema history where the government basically decided that there were 72 movies floating around that were so horrific um, they needed to be put towards a board and decided whether they basically need to be outlawed to the point where on the first list, which was what, 30 something movies? Yeah. If you were a video shop owner um, in the 80s and you had one of those 30, 30 odd movies in your shop, you could face prison time. Um, for, for renting those out, which might sound absolutely ridiculous and almost like we're joking, but that genuinely happened and people genuinely did face prison time. Mm-hmm. For some movies that were pretty bad, I mean, Cannibal Holocaust is on there on that first list, and obviously anyone that's watched Cannibal Holocaust kind of knows, you know, in in 1980, that's a pretty, it's a pretty harsh movie. You know, there's yeah. a lot of stuff in there that's pretty despicable. And then you've got stuff like Evil Speak. <laughs> Which, if anyone's seen that, is almost quite hard to get your head around why people would take such offence to that movie. So we went through them all, we kind of graded them, decided should they be on that list, should they not be on the list. You know, putting ourselves in the mindset of kind of right-wing, upper-class, tough, 
you know, politicians who are making these strange decisions on the behalf of the public because they basically thought that British society was going to shit in the 80s and they needed something to blame. And what better thing, you know, than, than horror movies? Let's yeah, blame, blame the movies. Yeah. Totally. So that was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, we watched some incredible films. Um, I would never in a million years have sat and watched all 72 movies if I didn't have reason to do it. Yeah. Um, so it was a good thing to tick off the bucket list. I don't know if I'd recommend anyone. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because it was like literally probably 75% of those movies were shite to the point where you'd never watch them again and yeah. you'd never even remember them a week later. Um but then there were some movies on the list which were really fantastic and there's some stuff I've got in my collection and yeah, it was it was well worth doing and obviously quite different to what we're doing now because I mean, we, we'll talk about obviously the, why we picked the director we picked for this first season but there are some fucking good films coming up in this uh, in this like, next couple of weeks. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the thing was we finished that show and I, I, I'll be honest, that, that, that show was on a different network. It was on Horophilia. Um podcast network and the the listeners over there were fantastic the the download numbers were great it was a really interactive podcast and we had people that actually joined us yeah <laughs> like every two weeks watching these movies you had seen and seen people that have carried over i mean they've, they've carried over to check out opera omnia and mm. this is basically our reward to ourselves it's like yeah. giving yourself a christmas present you know what i mean like this is my christmas present um we went through a lot of bad movies some of those movies are, are like borderline unwatchable just like amateur hour to the max yeah that and people were like that you should come back and do more doing the nasty there was well, a, a third list there was a th- there's oh. a potential season two that just seemed uh i couldn't i, I just couldn't do it no maybe one day one day maybe when we hate day. ourselves again like when we get to like maybe a couple of seasons into Opera Omnia and think we've been spoiling ourselves too much we'll balance it out with the third list um, oh yeah it's but it's uh, to be honest we I don't think either of us really had the stomach to go back and sit down and watch what we know are like a, a list predominantly populated with really bad movies yeah I mean there's, there's there's some really famous ones on there like a couple of the Friday the 13th movies I think are on that one yep um, but the majority of the movies if you bear in mind like there the list is kind of I mean when you look at the list it's not particularly ranked in order of you know gross out horrendous films there's just a lot that made the list just because of their front cover or the name or they just got like jumbled in but the way we've kind of looked at it is the films on this other list are going to be even crapper than the ones on the first list and when you and if you know about some of the films you watched on that first list the the, you know the prospect of watching up to 80 films that don't eat that are not even anywhere near as good as the ones that we watched you, you, there's just no fucking good reason to do it to yourself when you've got catalogues of films, catalogues of you know of directors that we could be watching instead. So that's kind of what we're doing here, isn't it? Yeah, that's the basis for Opera Omnia, which is a, a very fancy <laughs> toffee sort of. I was uh, going to say, like, <laughs> don't ask me to explain what that means because I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so so basically, Opera Omnia is Latin for complete work. 
or complete yeah. works. Um, and <laughs> as a, a, a peek behind the curtain on episode one, me and Andy spent the best part of about two months trying to pick a name for this show. We did, yeah. It was a fucking nightmare because every time we were like, in the director's chair, no, that name's been taken. All the cool names have been taken. So we went slightly off piste. And like Andy was saying, because we went through so many bad movies, and with the prospect out there of such fantastic movies and such fantastic directors, it, the cool idea was, how about we pick a director and dedicate a season to him, go through his entire body of work, or his opera Omnia. Mm. And that seemed far more interesting, and what we'll do is, each season we will pick one director and we will go through his movies. In the case of Michael Mann, he has... Well, in the case of Michael Mann, who is our first director for season one, um, we are going to look at one of his movies every two weeks. But there will be, I imagine, a time where we will come across certain directors we want to talk about that have quite a lot in their back catalogue, so we may, at that time, up it to two movie reviews per episode, because we don't want a season of Opera Omnia to go over a year, really. That's that's a horrible prospect. Yeah. Um, so I, I, we're lucky that our first director we've chosen has a nice, succinct 11 films and his rather long and fantastic career. Um that it makes the possibility of doing one every two weeks uh, a, a bit more palatable. So, for so the obviously next... in this instance, because he has obviously done more stuff than that, we're not uh, looking at TV movies and the like, are we? We're just going for... Purely cinematic releases. Yeah. yeah. It's theatrical works. I mean, essentially, most people would be affronted and aghast to know that Jericho hasn't made the list because that's... He won an Emmy for it. It was his first directorial debut in terms of a feature of sorts but it was made for TV so that doesn't make the list and he has won awards for his TV work um, and he, his TV work is like really fascinating he was he did a lot of work on uh, Miami Vice when you know he was one of the, the guys behind that show in the 80s um, he, he did work on Starsky and Hutch uh, he won awards for, for series of uh, police based um stories that he did for TV you know the, the guys had a great career in that but we are focusing on our lens our magnifying lens purely on his theatrical releases and as Andy was saying some of the movies I mean Michael Mann you, you think of Michael Mann you think of movies like Heat is one that springs to mind The Last of the Mohicans springs to mind straight away but this guy has a career which is at times so jaw-droppingly good uh, and his impact on directors, we, both myself and Andy are, are big fans of uh, Nicholas Wind and Refn. We, we, you mm. know, movies like Drive do not exist without Michael Mann. Yeah. It's, it's nuts, you know, how how his impact and his very stylized eye, so to speak, has like permeated them through, through directors of genre cinema, whether you're doing crime thrillers, whether you're doing straight up thrillers, whether you're doing horror, because he's, he's visualised influenced horror, and I know me and Andy both come from horror backgrounds, so yeah. he's just a fascinating director who has done everything. This guy covers like pretty much the, the widest spectrum that a lot of these directors that we will look at opera on there moving forward have covered, and what better way to start with him. So I, I am legitimately excited, and the first four episodes of this we are going to be covering some of my favourite Michael Mann movies mm. um, and then they just get better from that point onwards I, I, I actually am giddy and I can't wait to start so 
Oh, it's going to be good. Well, the difference is, like, coming into doing the nasty, we never knew from one week to the next whether we were going to be watching good films because probably only... It's, it's a very small amount of the films that you actually would recognise and have probably seen before. There's the obvious ones, Cannibal Holocaust, Spit on Your Grave, Evil Dead, that kind of thing. But it was just a complete lottery. Like, one week we'd have three films that were fairly decent, and then the, the week after it could be three films that were so fucking shit, if you weren't reviewing them for a podcast, you'd probably switch them off. Yeah. Um, whereas we know exactly what we've got coming, really, with this um, with this podcast. There's quite There are a few films in this that I haven't seen, um, but the ones that I recognise, you know, like you say, going up the list, they just almost seem to get better and better and better week <laughs> on week. So yeah. it's going to be hopefully great for the listeners um, because it's not like they've got to sit through a not very good film and then hear us talk about it. You get to sit and watch a fantastic film and then hear us talk about it. So um, hopefully people will join us along for the ride because I think there's going to be most people that are fans of at least half of these movies. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And the, the good thing about this is that we're going to be jumping in and out of different genres and tackling movies that if you have listened to previous work that me and Andy have put out, you are going to hear us talking about movies and genres that we've never discussed. Um, and that, that in itself is like is really exciting for me is that I sometimes don't get the chance to speak about other movie genres that I genuinely, you know, love. Like, with mm. genuine compassion for... Um, for, for movies in the in the kind of thriller and crime genre I, I mean I love movies like that I just never get a chance to talk about them no um, so but what I want to do before we we jump out take our first break play the trailer for the, the movie we're going to discuss which is 1981's Thief and then me and Andy are going to give you the lowdown on that movie is I want to throw out a couple of thanks right at the very start uh, the first thing I want to throw out um out on the, the old airwaves here is to Bo Ransdell of Legion Podcast Network he has graciously provided a home for this podcast so um, if you are listening to the show on SoundCloud or on iTunes or wherever you are listening to the show wherever you're checking us out make sure you throw a bit of love and support to Legion Podcast Network um, both myself and Andy have done other work on Legion Podcast network whether it's shows or guest appearances and it's a fantastic network with great shows and you can check that at legionpodcast.com and go across and show them some love so thank you very much to Bo for that but I also want to thank um, a musician by the name of Cryocon who very graciously did our intro and outro music so the music you heard at the start there and the music you will hear at the end comes from Cryocon um, Dan is a musician down in England who works specifically in kind of 1980s based synthwave stuff and you can check out his work and go and give this guy some support because his stuff is mind-blowingly good at cryocon.bandcamp.com where you can buy his stuff or follow him on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash cryocon that's C-R-Y O-C-O-N go and check out his stuff and thank you very much again Dan for letting us use your track now Andy are you ready to get up in some thief oh I'm ready oh, I can't wait for this we're going to take our first break of this show you're going to hear trailers for shows on the Legion podcast network you're then going to hear the trailer for 1981's Thief when myself and Andy return we're going to discuss that movie right after this Clytus I'm bored what plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. 
The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. How peaceful it looks. Most effective, Your Majesty. Will you destroy this Earth? Destroy it utterly. Send Rick and Penny in wool rocket Ajax. So, just destroy it? That's what Ming said. Don't you ever listen? Well, there's no arguing with Ming. Hail, Hail Ming. Ming. Wait! You see those transmissions on the Visua screen? Crow? Nightmare on Elm Street? Chud 2? Black Belt Jones? Nightbreed? What's a critter? Oh, I've seen those things. Flash? I guess we could wait a while before the destruction. Yeah, and watch the movies. And talk about them. The Helming Power Hour. Disobedience to Ming. For now. You can find us at Legion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. iTunes. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. At www. You know what? Just Google it for yourself. Just Google it, you bastages. Helming. Breaking two? Electric Boogaloo? Samurai Cop? Army of Darkness? Flash Dance? <laughs> <laughs> we might destroy the planet if it's Flash Dance. <laughs> trying to reach? I don't know. Oh, I think you've got the wrong number. Do I? I'm going to hang up. Wait, don't hang up. What's that noise? Popcorn? You're making popcorn. Uh-huh. I only eat popcorn when I listen to podcasts. I'm about to listen to a podcast. Oh, really? Which one? Probably the podcast on Haunted Hill. Is that the one with the two guys with the beards? Uh, yeah, Dan and Gav. Most episodes, they look at two different horror movies. Each episode, they look at a world of the strange, where they look at weird things from around the world. Sometimes, they even do special episodes where they look at different genres or directors' discographies and talk about them. Do you have a boyfriend? Maybe. So where can I find the podcast on Haunted Hill? Well, you can go to legionpodcast.com, Facebook, Twitter, or just go into iTunes and search for the podcast on Haunted Hill. So, are you going to ask me out? Are you clear? You've been putting down two, three scores a month. You want to put down contract scores all over the country? Working directly for me? I am self-employed. Geisty lice. Just diamonds or cash. Fine. I'll make you a millionaire in four months. I wear $150 slacks. I wear silk shirts. I wear $800 suits. I wear a gold watch. I wear a perfect D flawless three carat ring. I'm a thief. Do you think that I have been waiting for you to come along? You gonna marry her and have some kids? Yes. Hey, I'm talking to you. Hey. Hey, what? What is going on in your life that is so terrific? I'm just, I'm just asking you to be with me. 
got a problem. I want my money. We're your new partners. We're in for 10 points. I am the last guy you want to mess with. You get paid what I say. You do what I say. You don't know from one day to the next whether you're going to be killed, go home, or get busted. What's wrong with you? James Caan. Thief. And welcome back. So you've just heard the trailer for 1981's Thief, directed by Michael Mann. It's based on the novel by Frank Hoffhammer, um, and uh, the screen adaptation was done by Michael Mann. The movie stars uh, James Caan as Frank, Tuesday Weld as Jesse, Willie Nelson as Okla, Jim Belushi, I was wanting to say... uh, James Belushi and as James Belushi but he goes by Jim Belushi as Barry Robert Prosky as Leo Tom Sigrelli I can't do the Italian not bad not bad that sounded not too bad as Attilga uh, Dennis Farina as Carol there are other folks in the movie the synopsis for this one and I'm going to go for the slightly lengthier one on IMDb uh, because I like this one it says Frank is an expert professional safe cracker specialising in high profile diamond jobs after having spent many years in prison he has a very concrete picture of what he wants out of life including a nice home a wife and kids as soon as he's able to assemble the pieces of this collage by means of his chosen profession he intends to retire and become a model citizen in an effort to accelerate this process, he signs to take on a huge score for a big-time gangster. Unfortunately, Frank's obsession for his version of the American dream allows him to overlook his natural weariness and mistrust when making the deal for his final job. He's then ensnared and then robbed of his freedom, his independence and ultimately his dream. Um, so yeah, this is Michael Mann's directorial debut in terms of feature films. Um, it's shot in Ch- Chicago, which is his hometown. It's where uh, Michael Mann comes from. And it was very much a kind of passion project for him to go back and do a movie on his home turf in an area that he knew he grew up in, he knew very well. And it's, it's funny from my point of view because when... I say to anyone, if I just ask you right now out there, listeners, to tell me a Michael Mann movie which covers crime and a kind of cat and mouse scenario, most people will instantly say Heat. It's it's kind of the go-to thing. And rightly so, Heat's a phenomenal movie. A lot of people overlook Thief. And it, it blows my mind that they do overlook Thief because... I genuinely think as debuts go, this is one of the strongest debuts of of any film director in terms of style, content, script, casting, soundtrack, cinematography. This movie is the whole package. And if Michael Mann had only ever done this one movie, I think people would still be talking about his genius 50 years from now. And that one movie, it's it's pretty phenomenal. And what blew my mind is you'd never seen it before, Andy. I'd never seen it. And do you know what? I'm really glad that I didn't read the synopsis that you've <laughs> just read out on IMDb because I think that gives far too much away. Yeah. Um, now, 
I don't know, call me naive, but I didn't necessarily... I'm assuming we are going to just go straight into talking about spoilers. We're not kind of reviewing this for the purposes of promoting this movie, are we? We are dissecting this movie, so I think it's fair to kind of assume that people will have watched the movie before they listen to the episode. Yeah, I think I think that's, that's a good shout right at the, at the start here, is that Opera Omnia will always spoil every movie. So <laughs> there are no movies, even if it's one we really want you to see... Um, each review, there's no way to get around the plot points, uh, the acting, the character development or anything, unless we're talking about the entire movie. So be warned, yeah. if you're at this stage listening to the show now, especially after that lengthy synopsis, yeah. Um, yeah, if you do not want any further details about the movie spoiled before you hear the review, go and check out Thief. And I think because it's from like 1980, is it 1981? Yeah. I wasn't... I didn't have any expectations or any kind of expectations of what cliches might be in this movie because if this movie was made like 20 years later, I'd probably think, yeah, I kind of know what's going to happen. I can kind of foreshadow what's going to happen. But because it's made in 1980, I kind of, there was no expectations there for me. So all the little things that happened in the movie were a total surprise, which was great because you don't really get that anymore. You yeah. can kind of almost roll your eyes and go, oh, yeah, I kind of knew that was going to happen. I think they do such a good job with the movie, with the character development, especially within um, the sort of the villain, you know, the, the sort of the, the mob boss. Yeah, Robert Prosky. That's his debut role, actually, as in a Is movie. It? Yes, okay. his, first, like, his first movie role. So, um, yeah, and I... what a bit of casting. It's brilliant, and I genuinely thought what a really super guy as well, which is probably a bit naive of me, but I genuinely was surprised when he kind of screwed him over. I mean, it completely makes sense, really, because if you've got a guy that's that good at doing what he does and he can make you like $4 million, you know, in 1980s money, why the fuck would you let him go and not want to use him again? It kind of it does make total sense that he completely manipulates him into a situation where he can't really say no to another job. Yeah. Um, but I didn't see that coming, and there's quite and there's a few little things I didn't see coming, and I so wanted a happy ending for this movie. Like I think <laughs> I think what the movie does so well is that even though James Khan isn't really the kind of guy that you probably ever would know in real life, mm. I think you can completely relate to him. And there's just little things that they do, like in, in when he gets his money stolen quite near the beginning of the film and he goes to try and retrieve that money, you can see his hand is kind of visibly shaking when he's holding a gun. Yeah. So, and that kind of is a really nice little subtle bit of character development. This guy, I mean, you kind of find out what's happened to him in prison and you find out that he is quite a dangerous guy and he can obviously handle himself. But he's almost one of those thieves that it's easy to be on his side because he doesn't involve violence. He doesn't want people to get hurt. He just literally wants to, to, to do the job and take the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, there's a scene sort of fairly early on as well where he interacts with this woman that he basically kind of makes a proposal to. It's kind of a girlfriend, but he, he goes to visit um, his friend in prison and his friend says, look, lie to no one. It's going to ruin your life. It's going to ruin relationships if you lie to the people that are close to you. So he really does this heartfelt, incredibly emotional, almost plea to this woman to kind of be with me in light of what I'm about to tell you. Mm-hmm. And I think James Kahn actually says that's his most proud, like that monologue in the, in the diner, is his, he's most proud of that out of his entire career. Yeah, and I can completely see why because it's that scene that gets you fully behind this character and you want him to do the job and you want him to live happily ever after and I think that's a really smart bit of like directing there to, to kind of get that in early that you're so behind him I'm you know I 100% back James Khan's character if he came to me and wanted my help I'd be in there like, helping him pull that high stuff 
Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's the uh, on some level that's the the kind of line that this movie could easily fall over is that essentially our, our character that we are following our hero of this movie, so to speak, is a career criminal, and yeah. that in itself, you know is not something we can easily as audience members to, in today's society yeah with the, with the advent of TV shows like Dexter and things like that it's it's very cool to root for killers and you know <laughs> and all the rest but back then I mean to put forward this idea of someone who is a dangerous man and is a thief and we should sympathise him you, you sympathise with him why? Um, and, and that's that's the cleverness in the cast and I think James can has a look about him where you don't have to stretch that far to believe that this guy's done a stint you yeah. know a, a, in prison um, or he, he's grown up amongst kind of hard people you just believe that in his character but there is a kind of there is a compassion and depth to the way the character's written and acted that very quickly we're like yeah we want to see this guy get out of the criminal life we want to see him have the family and settle down and all the rest and yeah we fully understand that he is dangerous but when you see his interactions with with willie nelson uh, at the prison it's a two minute scene that's amazing says more than like some films take 30 minutes to kind of fully make you understand the relationship between these two people but it's how close they are to the glass speaking to each other it's the look it's the advice and it's such a brief scene but you basically kind of think look that guy's either his dad he's either a surrogate dad he's some he's someone that's so fucking close to that guy he's maybe he's done time for him you don't fully find out until later on yeah but you don't it doesn't really matter what the ins and outs of that are and you don't need to be spoon-fed that kind of stuff you just know that they're incredibly close to these two people. Yeah, I believe the relationship, like I was reading something earlier on, where they are still very close friends and they still, you know, see each other all the time. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a testament. Willie Nelson is, I mean, he's obviously a musician first and foremost, country musician, that's what he's known from. Does a bit of acting. Um, He's been in quite a few things. Some of his roles are quite liked. Some of them I've not really liked that much. Um... But he's fin- see his his body posture, see his eye movement. Mm. Like his eyes are really animated and alive when he's against the glass, and you can genuinely see all that. See that he's kind of living vicariously through James Can's freedom. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, you know when he's telling them the stories about what's happening in the outside world and what he's doing. He, he's just he's he's absorbing it all in, and I, th- I think like you say, it's a two minute scene, but. That two minute scene is so well crafted and so well placed and so well structured that it's just it's just a great piece of acting. It, it really is. It, and it makes the movie, it takes, once again, adds a bit more sympathy to the James Cannes uh, character, Frank. It gives a bit more flesh on the bones of his history and backstory, which ultimately shaped the decisions of where that character goes towards the end. I mean, yeah. he when he's when he's at the, the coffee. Uh, the coffee stop with uh, Jesse, uh, played by the the fantastic Tuesday Weld. She's she's great in this movie, um, and they they're having this interaction. He's telling her stories about prison and all the rest. When you see what happens when his dream is kind of almost torn down at the end, it makes perfect sense for his reaction. Everything he does at the end of this movie is the dismantling of his life. Yeah. Um, 
it's, it's, it's kind of because he's realised at that point that it can be taken away from him so easy that he can't be attached to anything. Mm. And I think that's I think that's wonderful as well. I think the the beauty of this movie is that it kind of we have some I start like James Can at this time period is a known actor. Uh, Tuesday yeah. Weld is a known actress. Willie Nelson is a known actor musician. Uh, this is the first role in movies for for Jim Belushi. Um, so this is his first movie, and totally against we we would see him go. Obviously, his brother was a very famous comedian. That it was natural for James Belushi to start doing more comedic roles in the eighties and nineties. Um, yeah. But this is a very kind of straightly serious kind of role that he's playing as well. Uh, mm-hmm. This is his one of the one of his crew, one of Frank's crew. Uh, Robert Pro, uh, Prosky done a lot of TV stuff. But this is his first theatrical movie. He has went on to do huge ranges of roles, whether it's you know and and Mrs. Doubtfire, or I'm sure he's in one of the Home Alone movies. I may be wrong about that, um, or it's someone that looks identical to him. I think it is someone that looks identical to him. But he's done he's done a lot of different things as well. Yeah. Um, but where the genius came in is Michael Mann cast in his movie a lot of people that weren't actors at all. He cast a lot of police officers from from uh, the Chicago area, like ex-cops, okay. and a lot of criminals <laughs> from the area that had all grown up in the... If you've ever seen the uh, the movie, what's it, that one with uh, Johnny Depp, uh, where he plays... The, the recent one, where he played the... Public Enemies? Uh, not Public Enemies, not the Michael Mann one, where he actually plays the real criminal. Ah. Uh, oh, Fuck. Black Mass, is it? Yes, Black Mass. If you've okay. ever seen, if you've ever seen that where he plays Whitey Bulger, and the, the whole point of that was that you know there's an area that people grow up in, where some people go off and be cops, other people go criminal, become mm. criminal, but they know each other because they grew up together. Yeah, um, yeah. That's kind of what you know. That's kind of what they did here in terms of Chicago. So when they they had cops and like cops and criminals that knew each other but reversed the roles so you had mm. people playing cops that were criminals and people that were criminals playing cops um, just, it really just adds to the authenticity though doesn't it it really does you believe these people exist um, and you believe that you're in the real world which I think you know uh, you know, adds to the, the, the kind of gritty realistic elements within the story structure mm. and I think that's once again that's great thinking from, from man who is, I mean, for all intents and purposes, and we'll touch on this pretty much for his entire career, is known for being a complete perfectionist. One of these guys that will spend hours setting up a shot. Um, and if he's not happy, he'll spend hours setting up again. You know, has a, a, a real visual eye for detail. Everything has to be perfect. Watching the special features for, for this Blu-ray, um, James Belushi talks about the week spent finding a Hawaiian shirt for his character to wear for one shot in the movie on a rooftop. Mm-hmm. And he was like that, he, he had production assistants driven wild. And eventually yeah. what they had to do was custom make a shirt out of material for James Belushi to wear in one scene because man had this specific vision of how he wanted the scene to look. And that's back then. And that, mm-hmm. tr- trust me when I say that carries right through his entire career he has he has already worked a shot out in his head and that's a shot that needs to be in the movie and it very seldom does that waver 
from the storyboard image that he has in his head and some of the cinematography in Thief is just beautiful I mean it's jaw-droppingly beautiful time spent just driving around the Chicago uh, streets at night with the iconic and we're going to touch on this as well Tangerine Dream sound uh, uh, score for this movie you know the, the soundscapes that are painted over it it is like a marriage made in heaven mm-hmm. and you look at movies like Drive um, from you know from Nicholas Winden Refn and you see it there Winden Refn has taken those kind of man-esque ideas of score and scene and drive them even move around to movies like um, most recently like if you watch Nightcrawler yeah with Jake Gyllenhaal Nightcrawler to me is a movie that's heavily influenced by Michael Mann mm. and it's those ideas of those shots kind of static camera following a car driving down um, where he I mean he, he does other movies that carry them through like in Heat more specifically when we spend a lot of time in a car in a movie like Collateral but Mm. It's all the PCs are moving into place in this movie, like the the man tropes. It's just are... little bits like there's, there is a scene like where you literally the camera is like almost mounted on the bonnet of the car, and all you see is like the street, the two street lights on either side of the bonnet, highlighting the swirls in the paintwork of the That's car. Amazing. And it's just little things like that. It's so subtle, and it doesn't really do anything. Yeah, you know, it's nothing. It doesn't help towards the plot or any or the pace of the movie or anything, but. It just gives that feel. It's like it's almost you can't really kind of you know you can't really explain it. Almost you can't really put your finger on it. It doesn't need to be there that shot, but the film is all the better for it, even yeah. though it's only like a twenty-second shot. Yeah, it just it works, and it's that it's that eye to, to visual detail, um, not at the the not at the detriment to to great story and great acting. I mean, you could easily. Um, go down the road of just like having a director that is you know visually impressive at the sake of you know good casting and good story um man doesn't do that man seems to be able to to bring in those elements but at the same time very much be fully aware that he's still telling the story so we need to focus on the story is always there and these these scenes kind of pepper through it in a way which is just really amazing, you know, from a from a kind of cinephile's point of view, watching a Michael Mann movie, even some of the the, the, the less than stellar outputs that we will touch on in the season, in the series, um, you know, are, are just there's always a hook for me to sit down and go, that's just a really interesting stylistic choice. Mm. Um, Especially think, in, the, in like the robbery scenes, like the opening scene yeah. is an incredibly tense opening of, of you know of, of a safe kind of cracking. Mm-hmm. But it's the camera shots of down the hole that he's drilled, showing yeah. you, and the camera shows you why he's drilling. Because I've always thought that every time I've watched a movie where they drill into a safe, I don't know why the fuck they're doing it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know why you drill a safe. What's the, I don't understand why you do that. And in this film, the camera goes down the hole that he's drilled mm-hmm. and it shows you, it's the little, you know, like the dial on a safe. Yeah. Obviously that you, you know, you get to the number and it drops a little hook in a hole and then you go and you wind to another number on these old fashioned safes. That's what he's drilling to. He's drilling to the thing so he can put a screwdriver through and knock that dial thing out, which basically unlocks the safe. Thanks, Michael, man, for showing me that because I never freaking knew like <laughs> the point of drilling a safe was now I know and it's just little shots like that 
put you in the mind of the thief so you know why he's drilling the safe you're there with him while he drills it you're there with him while he goes through the stages of opening this safe mm. and it's little things like that and then at the end as well like i've never seen in a movie anyone melt a safe open you know you see people drill a That's safe phenomenal like yeah. blow a safe up with dynamite use some kind of electrical device to trip the lock on a safe you've seen all these things you know in 20 different films over the years i've never seen anyone melt a safe and you see like the full process that he goes through he's got a team of people that he need that he, he kind of speaks to that help him he's got the guy in the bar you know that he takes his phone calls from he's got like a guy that works in like a metal works if he, you know when he's dealing with different metals he gets this guy to help him and they basically you know create this incredibly hot rod that they can poke through the hole in you know like the sort of a hole through the safe and literally melt this safe so it falls apart on them and they can take it apart and you're there the whole time the whole process of the melting the safe you're there with them you see the development of the kit you see that you know you go through the hole with the camera you see the bits of, of, of safe melting apart and the camera's right there it's so rare to kind of be that involved and it's that involvement in those scenes that really makes you want want them to succeed because you're almost there with them aren't you yeah definitely i think um the you you touch on the, the visual aspects of this stuff you know you're in for something pretty phenomenal in this movie within the first five minutes there is an absolutely phenomenal shot coming down from a skyline a raining skyline and there's this kind of greenish blue hue coming down from unnatural street lights um, and the rain sheet rain coming down and this camera pans down this huge alleyway as this weird trippy synth tangerine dream music is playing um, and these these credits are rolling up in this neon blue text you know you're in, in completely different territory from, from what you're used to from other filmmakers. And James Cann is... We're talking about the how he breaks into the safe and it plays this character who is incredibly focused, untrusting, but, you know, his, his kind of focused nature means that he knows exactly what he's doing. Everything's done military precision. Um, it's something that's emulated with the De Niro character in Heat later on. Yeah. Which is interesting because the stories for both, um, his screenplays for both Thief and Heat were written about this time. Um, so it took a long time for him to, to kind of work out how he was going to do his work on um, Heat. But Thief itself had been a movie that had been years in the making for man, you know, getting everything set out, you know, exactly where he wants to go with it. And Khan is like brilliant in this Like, I know we've already spoken about him kind of briefly at the beginning, but he is incredible in this movie, so much so that he himself, when he's talking about his career, says that, you know, this is the, legitimately one of his favourite films he's ever made. He, he thinks mm. it's. He thinks it's absolutely great. He said that his monologue in the diner is his favourite scene in his entire career, and it's yeah. a great, it's a great scene. Mm. And what you have in this is you have this director who picks actors and puts them into roles. Which I mean, can like he's he's played a mafia guy in The Godfather, you know. So this is we we know who he is. He does these kind of criminal roles. But mafia guys don't have that vulnerability, don't have that to an extent likability 
And that's the difference, isn't it? It's the vulnerability that he, vulnerability that he shows in a couple of different scenes, like the diner scene. Um, there's a really emotional scene when they go to a, an adoption agency. Yeah, yeah. As well, where and do you know what, right? If that if this film was made today, he would he would end up walking out of that adoption agency having adopted the child. Of course, yeah. Because that's how <laughs> modern cinema works. But in fucking reality, it's basically like he sits there and they're talking about what he's done for a job. And he starts talking where he worked in the prison and the, the woman's just a bit fucking thick. And maybe because of how well-dressed they are, you probably wouldn't assume that he's a criminal. But he's kind of telling her that he worked in the shoe factory for a bit and then he worked in the kitchen for a bit. And she and she obviously thinks he worked for the prison system. Yeah. And after a while, he kind of has to look go, look, lady, I, I worked in the prison because I was in the prison, okay? So obviously they've got absolutely no chance of adopting a kid, and and he and he talks about how fucking terrible the the care system is. Well, that's he's know? a kid of the state. He didn't. He exactly, grew up. Yeah. He grew up. That's why he essentially became who you know. The the implication is that you don't understand that the the system that you're putting in breeds people like me. Yeah. Yeah, you know, breeds these criminals that you won't allow. And it's, but it speaks a lot to because there's a vulnerability in his character, but at the same time. The, the scope of his arc in that scene is really interesting. Ultimately, his rage comes at the end that, you know, you're dooming these kids that mm. could have a loving household and a loving family that could yeah. bring them up, knowing the difference between right and wrong. You're mm. dooming these kids to a state system which is only going to breed, you know, these criminal intents. But, you know, literally two minutes before that, he tries to bribe her. So, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's really... It's really interesting that his character goes through these things of, you know, he's upfront and honest from the start. You know, I was a prisoner, you know, I I, I did bad things, I'm a criminal, but I have changed, I have reformed to, right, well, maybe you'll give a kid if I give you money, because that's Mm. what criminals do. Um, To, listen, this is is what you're doing to these kids, and you don't see that because you didn't grow up in the real world you grew up in the suburbs you don't understand how the world works I know no, how no. the world works and it's great it's like it's, it's this kind of mini arc of a character placed within this one scene within this movie and once again Can plays it phenomenally it's, it's just so well done his um, his reaction when um, once again we're spoiling this when uh, you know, his, his best friend and mentor dies. Yeah. And the, the guy, the, the the doctor comes out and speaks to him and says, you know, you know, he's, he's dead and, and Can just doesn't say anything, he just stares at him. That's mm. not how it's scripted. Like, that scream was not scripted that way. That was, Can just made the decision that he wouldn't answer. Yeah. Um, and it's so intense. It's such an intense scene because you, you don't know you spend is time he, with like, is he going to blow up in a sec is he blaming the doctor yeah because he probably does he, I think he does blame the doctor but he also has the reasoning power in his own brain to kind of go it's not the doctor's fault yeah there's no I, point in me kicking off here you know but the, for a second he's, he wants to you know like the, the blank stare at the doctor he wants to go mad but what's the point you know his mate's dead it's not the doctor's fault there's nothing he can do exactly and the, the actor that played the doctor would later go on and say that he was actually because he didn't know it wasn't in the script or anything he, was, he shot himself basically he didn't know <laughs> yeah. did not know what was going on and, and you can see it in his performance as well it's like like a doctor's natural reaction is to be compassionate and be caring and all the rest but at the same time this guy looks like you know the scar on the side of his face 
kind of tells that this guy's from a different world. Yeah. Um, which I think is, you know, once again, infinitely fascinating. Mm. I think the if we, we, we kind of turn our attention to to more, because we're, we're kind of jumping all over the place, and rightly so, because we just want to talk about, the, you know, the, how amazing the movie is. Yeah. But we find very quickly on in this movie that he has done this deal, he, you know, he's robbed these these diamonds, he's got some money, he's given it to someone else to do a deal, um, and this guy has been, for all intents and purposes, killed, mm. um, and his money taken off him, and he tracks his money down, and then, you know, appears at what is a front for the mafia, essentially, yeah. for organised crime. And threatens this guy, which ultimately puts him in touch with the character played by Robert Prosky. Is um, that deliberate, do you think? Is that a complete setup just to get the meeting? See, I I think it is. I think it is, and the reason I think... Robert Prosky had something to do with his mate taking the fall out of the window. and Yeah, I think it, it's funny because later on, the, the gun down... A Barry played by Jim Belushi in a manner which is similar to the way that Jim Belushi describes the this this guy dying at the beginning of the movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's kind of he's pinned up. You know, he's, he's gunned down, um, and so so it kind of comes across to me as a, as a special when you hear Leo in that first encounter between the two of them rattle off. The fact that he knows all about Frank, he knows everything that Frank's been doing, he knows how much money he's been pulling down, and he understands there's a place for him within his organisation. Mm. To me, it seems just too coincidental that... Like, he knows far too much about yeah. Frank. Like, there's, there's certain things where you think, how, how the fuck do you know that about yeah. and he, When he describes how he... All the people that he's been fencing his goods to ultimately... You know, work for Leo in some capacity. His involvement with with knowledge within the police. You know, his his reach is basically Chicago. Yeah, he know, he, know, he knows about the adoption agency meeting. Why? Oh, he knows everything. Know that. And yeah, my part part of me thinks that he may have known that. Maybe the people working for him. Maybe the guy that works in the the kind of factory that he he shakes down at the start of the movie didn't know. Because he, he's very quick to say, listen, this guy is unstable, he's untrustworthy, we do not want a guy like this in our organisation. Um, and, you know, it's kind of waved off by Leo Lee's like, no, this guy's got potential. And he lays out this this great plan of what he can be doing. Listen, this is how much money you can be making for me. We're talking about, you know, consistent scores where, you know, yeah, you're working for me and yeah, you're paying some money to me, but I'm taking care of everything. You'll never have to look over your shoulder from the police. You'll have a lawyer at your disposal. You know, I'm, I'm giving you what you need and right, you can run your own crew and that's your responsibility, but think of it as almost like a union. You know, you're paying union fees and we're taking care of you within this organisation. And yeah. Frank doesn't like that. Frank has a clear plan, a couple of jobs. This is how much money he needs. He's going to get a kid, he's going to get his wife, he's going to settle down, he's going to become, you know, he's beco becoming straight. That's what he wants to do. Retirement, isn't it? You know, yeah, it's like retirement. From the current criminal life. Because he doesn't want that threat of what he's doing, that idea of him going back to prison because that's the, the ultimately everything he does in this movie is to make sure that he never goes back to prison he's never back in that 
that scenario where he can't provide for his family and he ends back up in prison. Because as well, his original prison stretch was just two years. Yeah, and it he sounds terrifying. pretty quick. And it's basically like apparently there's a gang of guards and prison wardens and convicts. They had some kind of fucking arse rape crew happening. Mm. And he found out he was next. He found yeah. out he was going to be taken up and fucking arse raped and probably killed. So he had to act. And that's where his additional time came from. Yeah. So he knows full well you can go in prison, keep your head down, but there's certain things that happen that are completely out of your control that can add, you know, another fucking 10 years to your sentence. And so, yeah, like, it's totally understandable why he, you know, he'd probably rather die than go back to prison. Yeah, he doesn't, does not want to go back. And what Leo agrees with him in principle is that Frank only does a couple of jobs for him, takes his money... And then at that stage, if he wants out, Leo's going to let him out. You know, th- yeah. there's there's no issue. And it all builds up to... In fact, Leo helps him get a kid. You know, he, he does he does all these things. And at no point... Interesting what that synopsis said at the beginning. When It's when it comes to the this ideal American life that Frank wants. That's when the blinders go on. His, his natural weariness towards... What does this guy want out of this? Not trusting people. Kind of goes out the window when it comes to his wife, his kid and his retirement. These yeah. these become like blind spots for him. And Leo completely exploits this because when they do this, this huge job, which involves, like you say, this phenomenal um, kind of scene of this is a safe that we can't drill into and we can't get down to anything. We're going to use this superheated metal and mm. basically burn a hole and it's incredible to watch it's just like once again stunt it's work as well because oh. I believe that that's like proper fucking you know oh, yeah. like in certain films like they'll have just something that looks hot and they'll shine a bright light on it to make it look like it's giving heat off this to me looks like a fucking real like 12 you know 2000 degrees of fire coming off yeah. of this thing it's like the way I describe it is if you've ever been um, out at a fireworks display and you've heard a sparkler in mm. your hands and you've done it like right, yeah, that, that's a sparkler and yes you could get a bit of a nasty burn from holding that this is like a 12 foot you know kind of almost this, uh, this is basically a fucking lightsaber it really, <laughs> it really is this melts steel in um, Phantom Menace when they like cut through you know like the opening scene of the yeah. two Jedi like, that's basically what this is and th- yeah, this is what they've decided they're going to use to break through this ball. And it takes lots of prep, and he's got lots of people involved. And he gets there, you know, gets through, does the job, pulls the job off, goes away for his vacation with his family, comes back, arrives back. Leo's all great, and they're all cracking jokes, and everything's great. And there's your envelope, and there's your money. And it's about 800 grand shot. Yeah. And, you know, Frank, all the pleasantries go out the window. And I think Frank then realises how quickly he has been manipulated. I mean, he by... tells him that he's invested his money in property and that he does have the papers to that. So yeah. he owns the property. But unfortunately, by Frank owning the property, that means Leo owns Frank. And yeah. obviously that wasn't the fucking deal. It wasn't the deal at all. You know, he's like, and you can do another couple of jobs. And this, and you know, and this is building up your... And he plays like, Leo plays into this. It builds up property for your legitimate portfolio this is you mm. want to go legit and on some level leo is in a very weird way leo is kind of taking care of frank 
it's a, it's a pretty good deal if Frank was on board with it. Yeah, and not Frank a bad has... deal. He's not trying to fuck him over particularly. Like the property that he's the property that he's invested in, that is Frank's property. Yeah, it's just that's not what you know. Frank does not want to be in someone's pocket. It was you exactly. know, it was it was one last job. I've got enough money I can live on for the rest of my life, and I'm out of there. Yeah, and obviously when you've got someone that is as talented as Frank, from Leo's point of view, you can't let that go. You know, no. he, he is a, he can make him fucking multi, multi-millionaire in 80s money. Yeah. So, you know, you can see it from both angles, really. Yeah, and I, I think it's quite interesting as well as, I think Leo genuinely thinks, you know, right, Frank's this, you know, he's, he's this untrusting guy and all the rest, but when he sees what I'm trying to do for him, and when he sees the money in his hands... Mm. he'll come round, you know, he'll come round to our way thinking, he'll understand that I'm just this is a family, this is what we do you know, as gangsters we look after each other, as as this like, like family, at the same time you have Frank being pulled in by the police and worked over by these, these horribly corrupt cops that want to bring down Leo, you know, they want to bring down Leo by any means necessary um, and you know, the Frank won't cave to the police and he won't cave to Leo and that's ultimately what sparks the end of this movie as he realises that he's never going to be able to have this life that he wants because there's always going to be someone who either wants his talents or someone who wants him to roll over on someone else and he's, he's not prepared to do it and Leo basically... You know, takes it to the, you know the next level. Like 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 Frank legitimately loses it. You know, draws his you know he's drawn his gun and all the rest, and then leaves the property furious. And as a result of that, Leo executes Barry. So Barry dies um, in front of Frank, and then he's pulled in and he's seen the body, and then you actually see the nasty side of Leo. Yeah. And Leo is, on, on this stage, you, you're very quick to remember, for all he's helping him and all the rest, he's a criminal mob boss. Mm. And, he, you know, you will do this and you will do what we want. Or, you know, I've given you your kid and I've done this for you and, I've done, and I can take it all away. You know, I can make your wife, you know, have to go back out in the streets and I can, I can take this child away from you and I can quickly dismantle everything that you've built up um, and you have, you know, you have a set amount of time to agree to work for me and become, you know, one of my goons. Mm. And um, Frank uh, being <laughs> the sort of character that he... And the thing about it is he always says, like, throughout the movie, you, you make a really valid point at the start. He's the sort of guy that doesn't want any sort of blood on his hands. No. He doesn't, you know, he threatens people with a gun but he doesn't follow through with it and he's handshaking and all, all the rest and he keeps saying he, more than one occasion in this movie he keeps telling people that they don't want to get on the bad side of him mm. you know he says it to the guy at the beginning in that factory you know you don't know who you're fucking with and he says it to the cop later on in the, the cop room you know like, like that you know you know you, you can come after me and you can track me down and all the rest but it's, it's the wrong person that you're going to come after if you think yeah. you're just going to come and get me and it, you know it seems like tough words you know it seems like he's playing into this you know you don't but you're almost kind of pigeoning his chest out so to speak mm. yeah. to you know these kind of threats that don't have any substance until you see the end of the movie and you realise 
that you know he backs up everything he says he yeah that first sends his wife and kid away with money as his all his money she goes away with that he then destroys his family home he then destroys the car lot he works at he then destroys the bar that he makes his phone calls from mm. and then he goes out uh, to leo's house and this scene is fucking brilliant it's absolutely brilliant he yep. breaks into the property which he's a thief a master safe cracker and Leo for some reason doesn't have someone making sure the doors are secure I love that it's just like he's like totally he's like he's so complacent in his position I think Leo just doesn't think he's got the fucking balls to come after him like that yeah doesn't think it at all and you see it where his henchman who has the gun is filling himself up on pie and milk has unbuttoned his trousers because he's at that much he's yawning he doesn't get no one's concerned no one's concerned and Frank takes him down pretty quick Um, goes after Leo and there's something to be said about slow motion gun battles with proper blood squibs yeah I wanted I was going to I mean we might as well talk about it now then I was going to mention the gun squib because the squib that goes off when they kill Jim Belushi's character Mm -hmm. is just incredible yeah you know, it's, it's it's a proper front and back squib. You know, that, that fucking shotgun blast has gone in one end and it's come out the other side. And yeah, like, you know how I feel about CG blood. And I think, to be honest, I think probably 99% of our listeners are fucking fed up with CGI blood because it just doesn't look convincing, even in 2016. Mm-hmm. You know, even in the age of movies where they can where they can literally create a digital fucking Mordor and make it look convincing when they can digitally animate a fucking army of apes and make that look convincing, yet they can't get blood right. So when I see <laughs> squibs, and I see squibs that are that fucking incredible, I'll just do a little air punch for squibs. Yeah. I love that, it. That's shotgun... I understand, like, squib, you know, like, squibs are a fucking problem because if the shot fucks up, you've got to reset all the squibs, you've got to get everybody new clothes... You know, and you've got to start all over again. And I know how easy it is just to whack a bit of fucking CG blood in in post, but it's fucking lazy and it annoys the shit out of me. So, yeah, squibs, amazing. And that last, yeah, like you say, it's so realistic with this slow motion and uh, it's so good. It's, it's, it's brilliantly done. And the force from the squibs as well, it must pack a punch because they tear holes in clothes. Mm. Like, you know, like they properly like tear stuff. And I love that, you know, like he, he goes upstairs. Leo comes round with his gun. Frank puts him down with two shots. Leo's not dead. Mm-hmm. I love actually. I, I love Leo's death as well because it feels weirdly realistic. Yeah. Although the final shot is not realistic. Um, mm. You know, he, he kind of lies there and he's, he's still he's, he's like still alive, but he's he's pretty much a death door. Leo picks up the gun to shoot him one more time. Frank puts one in the head. Yeah, and Leo lets out a scream, which I don't think you can do when you're shot in the head. I think when your brain's terminated, that's. But I, who knows? I'm not. That's a... just movie folklore. I mean, anyone that's seen the Bud, the Bud Dwyer death yeah. knows what really happens when you get fucking shot in the head. It's, yeah. it's lights out. You drop to the floor like a sack of fucking potatoes dropping. You don't scream yeah. and topple backwards. You know when your brainstem's been fucking disconnected. You are drop, you're dropping like shit, but that's just a fucking movie trope, you know. That's we can't really hold that against it because I don't. But think I love I've, it. I don't think I've ever seen a film where someone's been shot in the head and they've dropped to the floor dead. Yeah, just but I, I, I love the I love the the idea of the slow motion scream as it gets shot in the head. Mm. I thought I, I love that because I don't like Leo. I want to see Leo suffer. Yeah, um, totally. 
So and also, got... Leo, you know how Leo reaches for his gun as he gets shot? Mm-hmm. So does the other henchman that gets knocked out, and I think that's really realistic. Even though he's, like, before he kind of passes into unconsciousness, yeah. the hand does reach to, his, to his, you know, the trousers of his belt to get his gun. Yeah. Little subtle touches like that. Yeah, as, as just an attention to detail, which is yeah. just... I, I mean, we're, we're applauding someone for doing a bit of research. You know what I mean? It's like, well, you shouldn't say, all you know, movie makers do that? You know what I mean? They should, but they don't, do they? No. Um, it's frustrating. Um, but his henchman has got to his feet by this point. He goes outside. Frank's not finished. Frank goes out to take him down. But the the other henchman comes running out of the bushes with a fucking shotgun. Um, mm. And, you know, he puts him down but doesn't kill him. That henchman then manages to to get a a shot into to Frank's shoulder. Frank puts him down, puts uh, the other henchman down, and then walks off into the distance, bleeding badly from his shoulder. And we get that kind of badass bitching guitar, electric guitar comes in. Yeah, yeah. You know, just fucking the, the thing about this, right? Is I always say this: there is there is something about the end of this movie and the end of Heat that gets me get legitimate chills down my spine whenever I watch either and it's the music building up that intensity that huge scorescape the camera wide pan moving up over a, a scene and it just it does things to me and I feel myself getting it's, it's uplifting and but it's at the same time it's weirdly uplifting because it's the it's the kind of death of or destruction of a character that I care so much about. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a weird juxtaposition that I, I think that Michael Mann seems to be able to do better than any director. Mm. And th- th- like I say, the score for this movie, the Tangerine Dream score throughout it, is just perfectly married with it. And we get, you know, a Michael Mann film come up, you know, it's that, that kind of blue neon text again. And that's, that's the end of Thief. And it's it's just, a, 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 speaking from my perception, I'm, I'm going to look forward to, to, to hearing you kind of let us know where you stand on it. But kind of. Speaking from my perspective, it is... It's just a fucking phenomenal movie. It is just so well done that... And this is this guy's first cinema movie, first theatrical movie, and it's about as good as it gets. Yeah, I mean, I've never been so fucking pleased that someone's been wearing a bulletproof vest at the end of the film. Yeah. And do you know what? In my little brain, he meets up with his missus, he goes and finds her, and they live happily ever after on the 400 grand together, to be honest. <laughs> I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd like to think... Yeah, who knows? I'd like to think that, but... You know what? My brain... You, what, your brain works differently from mine. Your brain has that thing, and my brain is like... He's he's like Dexter at the end of season eight. Yeah. He's just a lumberjack. <laughs> yeah, winking at the camera. But um, for me, like... I would say... See, because I had this thing, didn't I? Like, I was going to pretend that I wasn't really that into this movie, just just because I thought it'd be funny. And then Rach, like, kind of uh, blew my cover because obviously we had, we had a quick chat before, and she watched the last thirty minutes, and obviously I told her how much I loved it, and she kind of told you, so it kind of blew it. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is literally one of the fucking best films I've seen in about the last ten years. Like, 
if this is my movie of the year, if someone says to me, what's the best film you watched in 2016? It's, it's going to be this. I pretty oh, much... incredible. I don't think there's... I don't think I can... There'll be another film that I watch this year that's going to be better than this. Um, within the first 10 minutes, I knew this was going to be a great movie. Um, I paused it about halfway through to go into the kitchen and get some breakfast and literally said to myself, I'm watching a fucking great film. Yeah. And it doesn't happen that often. Um that all the way through the movie you're completely enjoying it and you're almost saying to yourself fucking you know, hell this this is an amazing movie you know and it and it's a two hour long film and I, on my uh, blu-ray because you gave me the screener it says it's the theatrical cut yeah is there another cut then i believe there is a i believe there is a director's cut i don't think there's an official release for the yeah, director's so you cut. don't actually get it i didn't know if there was like a second disc or something coming because obviously i've only got the screener hmm. Um, so yeah, for me it's really rare. I mean, you know how picky I am with films. Um, yeah, just a bit. <laughs> I'm really fucking picky. So for me, like, it, it, it's got to tick all the boxes. And for for a film to score highly for me, with the main thing it's got to do, if it needs to score sort of over an eight, is it's got to hit me emotionally somehow. Mm-hmm. Every single film that I score, either kind of a nine or a ten out of ten is got real emotional weight to it um and that's the you know that's what elevates a, a good film to an amazing film for me it's got to have some aspect of that that kind of makes me go oh god you know like, you know in in your heart you kind of feel it um and this is one of those movies but it's not just that every it ticks fucking every box like you say the score the cinematography the script the characters the character development the little attention to detail which for me is what makes me get so annoyed about films these days and I know it's hard not every director is going to be a Michael Mann or a James Cameron you know people with these like real attention to detail yeah because if if every director was like that like the film industry would be a very strange place you know it's, it's just it's not possible is it in life you know mm. every single footballer footballer can't be Ronaldo you know every yeah. single bodybuilder can't be Arnold Schwarzenegger you've got to have phenomenal human beings that do phenomenal things in the field that they're in but for me, it is one of the big things that's missing in modern cinema is that attention to detail, just the little things. And like you say, it is just as simple as doing a little bit of research, mm-hmm. getting some good consultants when it's stuff like weaponry and, and fire, you know, pyrotechnics, getting good consultants in that, are, you know, that make sure it's realistic. And it sounds easy. So why don't, why doesn't anyone fucking do it these <laughs> days? Do you know what I mean? Because they don't and it's missing. So when I, get all these little things and they all come together and and I just it makes me appreciate it so much more and it does it elevates the score of a film for me tiny little things like someone reaching for the gun when they get knocked out Mm. I notice stuff like that let me just tell you about the scene as well in the courtroom when he's basically getting his mate out of prison because his mate's gonna die yeah I knew there was a bribe going on there (laughs) and not everyone will probably pick up on it straight away because I think people are so used to being spoon-fed stuff. There yeah. are no spoons in this movie. There are no spoons in sight. You know, you get it in David Fincher movies. You don't. He he's another one that doesn't feel he needs to spoon-feed the audience. Mm-hmm. And Michael Mann is another one. Like there's a scene, and it, and and at first I thought that looks really unprofessional that the lawyer's got his head in his hands almost. Yeah. <laughs> you know when you put your hands on your chin and your fingers kind of reach up your face underneath your eyes. Mm-hmm. I thought, God, that's a really weird kind of almost unprofessional thing for a solicitor to be doing. And then you realise he's doing the fingers a bit like in Ghostbusters when Egon's kind of 
holding the fingers up to show, you know, to show how much they charge. Yeah. And he's signaling the judge with his fingers and the judge is signaling back, no, that's not enough. I want That's more. not enough, yeah. <laughs> and then they do do a little spoon fee thing afterwards where he goes, right, you owe him six grand for that. But they didn't really need that. I mean, maybe they did need that for people that aren't probably maybe not that, uh, you know, not that uh, kind of, they don't notice stuff, maybe not so observant viewers needed that little sentence of him going, oh, you owe him six grand. But just little subtle things like that, they just really made me smile. I thought there's a fucking deal going on between these two and it was great. Like, there's that, it just makes the movie for me, those little things. And when are we scoring it? I don't know. If I need, I'm, I'm still torn on what I'm going to give this as a score. <laughs> Right, so we'll do we'll do that just now. So basically, what we'll do on every episode of Opera Omnia is we will assign a grade to the movie out of ten. So it's going to be a, a kind of realistic, technical-based movie grade. And then what we're going to do is we're going to week on week we're going to proclaim what we think is the best movie we have seen by Michael Mann. So obviously, by default. Um, Thief is the best movie we've seen by Michael Mann and yep. each week we will watch a movie and then at the end we will decide whether or not that movie was better than Thief so Thief mm-hmm. is now our benchmark um, and we'll, we'll carry that through at the end of the season we will rank our top 5 movies by Michael Mann um, so you will know what number 1 is because we will have already told you all the way throughout the season as that's changed um, but we will give you our top 5 and the thing about the top 5 is that, that there's a very good chance that that will be different for me and Andy so you will have two different top 5s coming out of that which is I'm really excited about because th- we did a similar thing on doing the nasty we had ones that we genuinely thought were you know like obscenities so to speak Um mm-hmm. And those were our lists were slightly different on that. But in terms of the grade of this one, and I'm happy to kick us off here because I, I know how I'm grading this. I, I give this a 9 out of 10. I, I genuinely think it, across the board, does everything pretty much perfectly and I love it so much. Um, and the only reason it doesn't get a 10 is that I think... Um, there, I mean, the movie is two hours long and I think it handles character development and story really well. There are a couple of minor, minor, minor blips and you hit the nail on the head with one of them is that I think the scene where they're discussing the bribe works so much better if we then don't hear, oh, by the way, those six fingers he was holding up on his face mean six grand. Mm. I, I kind of worked that out. Um, and, and small things like that which are not blights and in you the know movie. what and if you didn't work it out as a viewer tough shit yeah I, I, I tough don't shit yeah, if you yeah. didn't work that out because you don't need you know the, and there are other little things I had an example and I've forgotten about it but there's another little thing where they really don't go they really don't explain what it is and they don't need to and I can't I think it's something with Jim Belushi's character but yeah, like I just think you'll get it. You know, if if you enjoy that movie and you didn't really understand how he got his mate out of prison, you'll get it on the second watch. Don't worry about it, mate. On the second watch, it will click into place. So yeah, they didn't need it, but you know, it's in there, isn't it? Just yeah. for dumb people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much. Um, the the other things I mark it down with slightly is the police brutality in the room is a bit staged. You know what I mean? Okay. It looks like when you're lifting a plastic bin and hitting someone with it and then the reaction of James Can to getting that done, I'm like, that didn't hurt you, James Can. Um, it's police... funny because he does that in Godfather, doesn't he? Someone else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I understand the phone book, but the bin's a bit silly. Um, 
So I, I don't necessarily think that's a particularly good choice. But out with that, the rest of the movie is fucking flawless. Um, and I think a 9 out of 10 um, is, is more more in line with where I think this movie stands as a grade. What about yourself, Andy? What do you give it out of 10? Yeah, well, I was basically toying between a 9.5 and, and a 9. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of decided as we were talking, I don't think I really want to give half grades. I think I just want to give a solid number, eight, mm-hmm. nine or ten. I don't okay. want to stop bringing halves because if I bring halves into it, then there's potentially 20 different grades I could offer. With <laughs> yeah. Isn't there? Yeah. Whereas if I just do 10 out of 10, it's, it's a lot more kind of rounded. So I'm giving it nine. Um, the reason I'm not giving it higher than a nine is not necessarily for the same reasons as you. Mine really is something that I can't put into words. It just hasn't got that something that takes it to a ten. That je ne sais quoi, if you like. If you're doing if you're doing Latin, I'm doing French. Mate. Um, yeah, there's sometimes for me, I can't fully explain why a film is a perfect film. Yeah. Um, and there's probably less than 20 films ever for me that are a perfect 10. Um, unfortunately, this just isn't one of them, but it doesn't mean it's not an absolutely phenomenal film and one of the best films I've seen in fucking years and years. Um, so it's a 9 out of 10. And it's the best film Microman's ever done so far. Yeah, on the list, it's the best one. So there we go. Right, we're going to take our final break of this show. You're going to hear some promos for shows that are on the Legion Podcast Network, the network where you can exclusively listen to Opera Omnia. When we return, myself and Andy are closing out the show right after this. Hello and welcome to Hello, This is the Doom Show. I'm Richard. And I hate the burning. Shh, who are you? Speak. (laughs) And I'm Brad. She came in and said, bark, bark, bark. And he said, bark, bark, bark. And she said, bark, 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 bark. That's what I got. One is the Suspiria boner. The other is the Inferno boner. <laughs> which, anyway. Which one is crying? <laughs> the boner of tears. <laughs> Hello, This is the Doomed Show is available on hellodoomedshow.podomatic.com. Dot com and doomedmoviethon.com Hello, hello, this is the Doom Show, Richard, Brad, Jeffrey, Nava. It's the Doom Show. Hello, hello, this is the Doom Show, Slashers, And you've been listening to Opera Omnia, Season 1, Episode 1, where we've kicked off our journey into the filmography of Michael Mann by looking at his very first feature film, Thief from 1981 Andy I fucking loved that it was awesome it was a great discussion and it's a fucking great movie and I'm going to buy the Blu-ray because obviously you sent me this screener from Arrow Mm -hmm. Um, so I benefited from the lovely um, transfer but unfortunately none of the special features are on that disc Um, are they not? no they're not no bollocks yeah so I've looked into what is on the disc um, and yeah the the special features look phenomenal so they are Basically, the, as soon as I get back off holiday, it's the first movie I'm going to go and buy because uh, I, I need to watch the Michael Mann documentary. I need to watch the James Kahn interview. It's, it's yeah. got to be done. It's, it's really good for, especially for what we're going to be doing for the next wee while. Um, it's worth saying that we have, um, we are obviously we're covering these movies but where possible we will tell you the versions of the movies that we watch so both myself and Andy watched the Arrow video Blu-ray 
of it. In America, Criterion Collection put out Thief, so if yeah. you are looking to get yourself a little copy of it, um, check out the Criterion release. I know Criterion tends to be a bit pricey, but trust me, it is worth it. Um, it is a, a pretty phenomenal film. Andy, you've got a fancy setup at home. You've got like the big fancy mm. TV, the nice surround sound system. Um, how did that all sound on the Blu-ray? Was that was that uh, good? To be honest, I watched it at seven o'clock this morning, so I couldn't have the <laughs> the sound turned up to crank out, um, which is a shame because I imagine the the heist scene at the end, like breaking into the safe, probably would have yeah. sounded pretty great. Um, I can attest that the uh, the the visuals are really great. Um, it's a really really nice transfer. I was trying to think this morning what it was really similar to um, that I watched recently. Fuck, I can't remember. It's really crisp. It's really mm-hmm. clean. It's still got that hint of grain. So it's yep. still got that really kind of filmic look. Um, but it's just Arrow kind of doing their thing. I don't know if they use the same as the Criterion release or is it a different... Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. There's a, there's a th- I know Arrow sometimes to save cash will just buy the, re- the rights to a to a transfer that someone else has already put out, won't they, to save them having to kind of spend fucking ages in the booth, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think Criterion put it out first, so it wouldn't surprise me. And I know that there there must be some sort of weird symbiosis between the two companies in terms of trade and transfers, cause Arrow have put out um, Cronenberg stuff that Criterion's already put out, and vice yeah. versa. Um, so like uh, you know, Arrow's actually put out stuff that then Criterion have put out. So I, I would I would assume there must be there must be something going on there. But um, I know like if you're buying like the legitimately in my my opinion the two definitive names on you know complete packages and transfers are arrow video and criterion yeah um, they're like the top the top tier so you know if you're buying from either company you're getting great quality yeah so i mean definitely. if anyone owns or already owns arrow releases you kind of know the quality you're getting for and this really really doesn't disappoint it's a, it's a really nice looking uh, nice looking movie this uh, yeah, considering so, a lot uh, of it's dark as well, that's uh, that is, sometimes yeah. uh, you do get quite a, a, a drop in quality of picture in nighttime scenes. Certainly, in some old films, not in the case of this one. Old, there's a lot of stuff that's set at night and it looks pretty pristine. So, yeah, it's it's pretty phenomenal. Um, nine so quid, a, nine quid on Amazon. Yeah, so nothing. It's a bargain. Yeah, but um, right. So we are one movie down. Uh, like I say, we're covering the entire feature filmography of Michael Mann, which means that coming ahead on this show, we will be doing an episode on The Keep, on Manhunter, Last of the Mohicans, Heat, The Insider, Ali, Collateral, Miami Vice, Public Enemies and Black Hat. The Man has a movie scheduled to come out in 2018, which is, I believe it's based around the Ferrari family. Yeah, Enzo Ferrari, yeah. Yeah, which, I mean, that'll be interesting enough, I would imagine, but it's not going to be out by the time Opera Omnia finishes. So those are the 11 movies we're going to be discussing. And with that in mind, next week we will be returning with 1983's The Keep, um, a movie which couldn't be any further removed from Thief if it tried mm-hmm. other than the fact that Robert Prosky's in that one as well yeah. <laughs> I think that's about it the only connection yeah it's a weird weird movie so yeah so I hope you have enjoyed this first episode of the Opera Omnia podcast like I say we're going to be with you 
every two weeks um, discussing a Michael Mann movie for season one. We have a Facebook group page to come across there, join in our conversations over there. It's a fairly small group at the moment, but to be honest, we've not put out anything. This is our first episode. We would expect more people yeah. to come along after the, the fact, but it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash opera omnia. Um, come across and let us know how you're getting on with your Michael Mann movies, if there are any movies from his that you can't wait for us to discuss, other ones that you really didn't enjoy that you're looking forward to hearing us discuss, or if there are directors that you want to hear us dedicate seasons to, moving down the line, let's get some conversations about some fantastic directors on the Opera Omnia Facebook group page. Um, You can also leave us feedback um, by way of our lovely iTunes feed um, on the, the iTunes that'll be all sorted out hopefully by the time this episode drops you will be able to check us out either on the Legion podcast feed or on an exclusive feed on iTunes and leave us some iTunes love over there any rating we get over there especially if it's good rating the more of them we get higher up the ratings charts will get pushed for more people to come out and check out the show yeah um, Andy is there anything else you want to say before we finish off uh, this very first debut episode of Opera Omnia. No, other than I think we started incredibly strong with the the film that we've obviously had to start with, um, but that doesn't mean the quality is going to diminish because it's Michael Mann we're talking about. So the films yeah. are the the, the quality is going to be up there throughout this series. I think. Yeah, I can't wait. Can't wait. So many movies that are on this list that I just can't wait to get into. Um, it's going to be incredible and you guys are going to join us on that journey Andy would you like to say goodbye to our listeners please bye listeners see you in a couple of weeks and this is Duncan from Opera Omnia Podcast saying bye bye Mm.